Good morning, everyone. Sunday morning, you're all here. Those that are serious about making change, get up on Sunday mornings, and you did. Thank you very much for being here. My name is Bob Drynan. I'll be moderating this panel. My history is that I majored in English undergraduate. In 1973, I came to New York to go to the New School for Social Research, which at that time they called the graduate faculty. When I arrived in 1973, it was 40 years after the University in Exile was formed, which became the New School. The University in Exile brought in a lot of European intellectuals because of the, the rise of fascism in Europe. And when I went to the New School in 73, I studied critical theory, and we read Habermas, Adorno, and Lukács. Also, a person that was there was Hannah Arendt. And Arendt, as you know, covered the uh, Eichmann's trial for the New Yorker, and she wrote a book. And in that book, she talked about the banality of evil, right? Which is, it's not a particular group that's capable of, of, of being evil and doing evil things. We all have that capacity. And the, the connection here is that as, as capitalism becomes extreme and the, the disparity of wealth becomes extreme, it leans more toward fascism, much like Europe. And this is, this, these are accurate parallels. And so it's, it's, it is important to talk about these things, to talk about fascism and to talk about what inequality means. So I went to graduate school and I couldn't get a job, and then I went to law school and I've been practicing law for 40 years. Professor Rick Wolf, you, you all know Rick, and I don't mean to be telling you anything that you don't know. My only uh, goal here is to speak for about three minutes and, and tie the three speakers together thematically. Rick has been, has been writing books for us and speaking to us most recently on economic update on a regular basis to provide, to pull back the veil on the capitalist matrix of this country so that we can begin to understand how it works. And if we don't understand how it works, we won't find a path forward. And that capitalist structure is supported by both power and myth. The power is embedded in structures that exist, both political, economic, and social, and cultural. And most classically, those myths are intended to explain the, the, the gross inequality. And, and most typically, those people at the top of the hierarchy are the wealthy, and they're the heroes of the stories, and they're the ones that write the stories. And the working class and the poor and the oppressed are those that are labeled criminals, right? And that's the, the hierarchy. And what capitalism does and has done is to assign value to human life. And that value is based on, on essentially a hierarchy uh, that we understand now as a white supremacist hierarchy. And um, that has caused enormous harm. When, when there's gross inequality and people are suffering, and the suffering is profound, it causes enormous harm to everybody in this room and everybody that's subjected to that kind of system. And this is where uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud enters the picture. Harriet is a Marxist therapist. She's been a writer. She's written books. She's been a speaker. She speaks. And she speaks about the most intimate aspects of human relationships, and that most typically is with the family and other kinds of uh, relationship as they, as they exist in this society. And Harriet will, will describe for you the harm caused by an extraction economy that harms everyone here. This brings us to the, back to the structures of the, the, the society. And in this society, in the United States, we look at, at slavery, right? And, and we can't look at class without looking at, at race in this country. Since slavery, there's been a line to the poor communities in this society. Those communities are poor not by accident, and race, racism is not an accident. Those communities are poor because since slavery, there's been various structures, which, which Dr. Westcott will explain, that have kept people of color at the bottom of that hierarchy. And in a capitalist society, there's always a hierarchy, a racial hierarchy. But what I wanted to say is the movement for Black Lives Matter is there for a reason, right? And if you're a person of color, you think black lives didn't matter. And to some extent, white lives didn't matter either. But white lives have always been better than black lives. And so all those lives matter. But in this society, it's really important to then isolate race and talk about that because you should make no mistake about this. There'll be no movement for social justice or equality without addressing race in this society. Um, and Dr. Westcott 
uh, was a lawyer and went to graduate school because law for her uh, didn't allow her enough participation to do the kinds of things that she wanted to do. So we'd like to open up the discussion with uh, Rick Wolf. Thank you, Bob, and thank all of you for coming. I share Bob's admiration that however seductive it might have been to go to church, you didn't do that. (laughs) Um, You came here instead, which shows extraordinary insight and commitment. Okay, my task in the time I have is to try to provide a sense of how the economy affects the American people. And the capitalist system is, I believe, and I don't say this often, uh, in a period of crisis. Um, Capitalism has ways to work its way through these crises. It has done that repeatedly. So it would be foolish to imagine that it's the end. On the other hand, every system goes through crises, and eventually one of them is the end. So while I'm not sure this might be the end, it might. And there are some reasons to wonder whether or not this time there is a way out. And I'll come back to that uh, at the end. How does the capitalist system in its current U.S. form shape our lives? And, you know, that's a big question. I'm going to focus on three ways that it currently affects us. The first way is summarized by the term exploitation. It's literally a a description of how your job shapes your life. You know, your job, the thing you do five days a week in most cases, or you did if you're retired, the best five days of each week, the best hours of those five days, Adults spend an extraordinary amount of their time at work. So if I can describe something that's really horrendous that goes on on the job every day, you're going to be deeply affected by it. And your personal relationships, as Harriet will talk about later, will be deeply affected by it. So what is exploitation? It is not the common sense definition. It's not about being badly treated that folks aren't nice to you or make you sweat or fill you with anxiety. Jobs often do that, but that's not what what exploitation means. Exploitation is a very specific, simple thing. And the best way I can describe it is to give you a simple numerical example. Imagine yourself going to look for a job. Perhaps you were a young person some time ago and you did that and you sat down with a prospective employer and he or she went through the work you would be doing if you got the job, and then you got to that money part, the moment when the employer says to you, uh, this is how much we can pay, or maybe even asks you, how much do you want? And you answer, and let's assume just for simplicity that you answer $20 per hour. And let's assume that the that your employer smiles and says, okay, I'm going to pay you $20 an hour. You know what I'm about to tell you, even if it hasn't occurred to you in quite these words. You know that in the private sector, which is where most of us work, the overwhelming majority, the employer produces some good or some service and sells it into the market. And that employer is never, ever going to hire you for $20 an hour unless the following sentence is true. During each hour that you work, you add more to the value of what your employer sells than the $20 he's going to pay you. Or to say it in real simple English, you produce more than you get paid. 
So if you've said to yourself, if you've heard some proud person say, I will never work for anyone who doesn't pay me what I'm worth, you're talking to a person who doesn't understand how the system works. You were never paid what you were worth, and you cannot and will not be in a capitalist system. Why? Because the difference between what your labor adds to the value that your employer sells and what he pays you is his profit, and it's why he's in business. And if you don't generate that profit for him, he's got no use for you. It's nothing personal, it's just business. It's the capitalist form of business. So for the American people, the vast majority of whom come home every day with a vague sense of having been ripped off at the job, they're exactly right. It's just they haven't had the course yet to be able to understand why they feel that way and why they ought to. The closest we get, and I Pardon me, pardon my, me for those of you who've heard me do this joke before. The closest we get as a culture to recognizing it is that peculiar tradition we have of the name we give for the two hours immediately at the end of the workday. The two hours that are advertised in that window we pass on the way home from the job, which tells us if we come inside, we can have a happy hour underscoring how different it is from the previous hours. Marx, who figured this all out neatly and clearly, right in the beginning of Das Kapital, the early chapters, he lays this out. Exactly what I just did. The words are different. Uh, He spoke German. So, Marx says, this creates in the worker a sense of being my language, not his, ripped off his language, alienated. He's constantly producing for somebody else. Not by will, not by choice, not by design, but by a system he has no choice or she has no choice but to engage to survive. You need that wage and salary because otherwise this system doesn't treat you very well. This weighs on you. This eats at your self-concept. It eats at your sense of achievement. You may repeat to yourself, as people do under these circumstances, that you're not going to work unless you get paid what you're worth. But you have to repeat it because somewhere you know it's not true. And that's hard to face. And then on top of it, You're caught up in a system in which the employer has every incentive and every interest to squeeze the part that's paid to you, thereby increasing what's left over for him in what you produce. Get more out of you, give less to you. It's endless, isn't it? Get you to do a little task extra. Get you to go quicker to the bathroom. Make sure you come on time and don't leave early. Get the picture? Always, always. And if there's a machine that can make you more productive or make you unnecessary, oh boy, will it be engaged quickly. Impact on you? Who cares? You spend the best days and the best hours of your adult life in an institution that tells you in a thousand ways, I don't give a shit about you. You're here to produce profit for me. End of story. Don't ever forget it. Maybe you have an employer who doesn't put it quite like that. But how important is it how it's put? It is the reality. That's a terrible thing to impose on human beings. In its own way, it's terrible like slavery to divide the population into masters, a small number, and slaves, the vast majority, and to make the slave not only the producer of everything that gets made, but to give all of that to the master who then decides to give some enough back 
to the slave to keep him alive, to keep her going. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Horrible way to live. And then you are the property of the master altogether. Wow. That's even worse. In capitalism, of course, you are, as Marx loved to say, free. And here's what the freedom means. You can leave the employer and go find another one, hoping against hope that the other one won't treat you as nastily as the one you just left did. A long shot and a very constricted notion of what freedom means. You're not free to be other than an employee. The whole notion of employer-employee is a horrific prison into which to thrust the majority of people. And that's what capitalism has always done. It's a bizarre idea, and it mocks history. We overthrew slavery because the master-slave relationship was understood to be horrific. We replaced it in many cases with the feudal system. Until then, again, we decided as a species that the Lord Serf, while better than master-slave, was not enough. Well, guess what? Master-slave is a dichotomy, a way of splitting the people involved in production into two very unequal partners. Feudalism is another. And for those of you who haven't already figured it out, capitalism is just a different form of the same dichotomy. It just calls it employer-employee rather than lord-serf or master and slave. There's a reason Marx referred to workers in capitalism as wage slaves. He wanted people to see a parallel we shouldn't forget it. Two other dimensions of capitalism in position on us as human beings. First, inequality. And it's appropriate now, as Bob pointed out, because it's extreme. I want you all to enjoy, if you can, the spectacle in this society, comparable to anything out of a, a pharaohs in Egypt, thousands of years ago. Jeffrey and Mackenzie Bezos. Mr. Bezos has a great achievement. He delivers packages. He's a stunningly effective package deliverer. And in a society like ours, who should more deserve fantastic wealth than a package deliverer? That's how capitalism works. He delivers packages, oh, let me be fair, quickly. He delivers them quickly. His wealth about $160 billion. Enough money to erase many of the social problems we have in this country. If put to a better use than the personal property of Jeff Bezos. He did what so many of his fellow business tycoons did, but not with his wife. And so that relationship came to an end. And they got divorced, which I believe is finalized this week. That's why I'm picking it's topical. She will get 39 billion out of his 160. By having 160, he ranks number one on the Bloomberg billionaires list, for those of you that want to keep track of this. She, because he has to give her at least that amount, she now becomes number 22 on the list with her 39 billion. So this is not an appeal for money for them. Uh, clearly, they don't need it. By the way, you know, if you get, have $160 billion and you invest it in U.S. Treasuries at about 3%, it means you're getting 4 or $5 billion bucks a year automatically, which is why you get richer and richer. Uh, excuse me, they do. You don't. This is a crazy system. 
Mr. Bezos is using that money to develop rockets that will take him to the moon. He understands the risks of the future in America, even if the rest of you don't. He's prepared to go somewhere else. We can wave as he leaves. There is no justification for this inequality. There never was. What he has is therefore not available for this society. What he has is disposed of as he sees fit. To whomever he sees fit to give it. That's not democracy. Democracy says the wealth we all help produce, we would all participate in deciding how to make use of. We don't have that. We give a wildly disproportionate amount of the wealth to a tiny group. 10% of the American people own 84% of the stocks and bonds. There never was a people's capitalism, but to use such phrases today is to mock the reality in a cruel way. The third thing that capitalism does, beside dividing us into exploiter and exploited on the one hand, rich and poor on the other, is instability. We are still reeling, as is the whole world, with the consequences of the collapse of global capitalism in 2008 and 9. That peculiar quality of capitalism in which periodically millions of people doing their jobs are thrown out of work. Millions of enterprises chugging along, making goods and services go belly up. Vast quantities of output that could have been made available to solve our problems aren't being produced. Think of the, the lunacy of it. Everybody hates the downturn. The business community, the working class, the unions, the government, everybody is against it, and nobody seems able to do anything about it. We have had downturns every four to seven years in every country where capitalism has become the dominant system, without exception. Every now, that's an average, four to seven years. So every now and then, a, a, a capitalist economy can kind of be chugging along even more than seven years. Usually, when then the, the collapse comes, two, three, four years later, it's even worse because it has gone longer than normal. Which is why the American financial press today, if you read it, which I am un unfortunately required to do, is agonizing over the next downturn. Because we're over seven years since the last one, 2008. You know who's worried most about it? Mr. Trump, because he can kiss his election goodbye if it happens too soon. So he's putting pressure on the Federal Reserve to get those interest rates down, to get us all to borrow more money, to postpone the downturn until after the election when he could give a crap. You live in what I've just described. That capitalism messes up your life? You haven't figured that out? Of course you have. It's just hard to face. And no one has a harder time than the people whose job it is to face it and deal with it. The Republicans and the Democrats. And on these issues, the difference between them is trivial. Have we had downturns every four to seven years in America? Uh-huh. Have they solved the problem? Not even close. They pretended they did after the terrible one in the 1930s. Oh, we've fixed it. Until 2008, when that horse couldn't be sold anymore. No, we haven't fixed it. Our politics is driven by it. All we have developed is a series of arguments to blame somebody else, something else, not the capitalist system that works like this. Oh, no, it's Arab oil. Oh, no, it's China. Oh, no, it's Russia. Oh, no, come up with something anything other than the system. And that's my final point. We live in a society in which unbelievable amounts of energy, creativity, and money are devoted to one fundamental task. Keep the anger, the rage, the upset, the hurt that capitalism provokes 
from leading people to identify capitalism as the problem. Come up with anything else. It's the family. What? It's the lack of moral education among the young. Huh? What? It's the Chinese. We have a debate. The Republicans have decided the Russians are good and the Chinese are bad. The Democrats have decided that the Chinese are good and the, the other way around. I can't even keep it straight because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. These are games. We think we can work a deal with the Iranians. Oh, we don't think we can. Stop. These are efforts to constantly focus you elsewhere. A nation of 325 million Americans, which includes 10, maybe 12 at the outside, million undocumented immigrants, has figured out that the problem that we need to put number one to fix our economy is to beat up and literally kill the immigrants. We're about to celebrate a 4th of July with a statute of liberty not far from here, which says we welcome the poor, the hungry, the huddled masses yearning to be free as we slaughter them. This is a society that's spun out of control, whose fakery to itself it reaches such extremes that it's easy for me to take these 15 minutes and sketch it for you. That tells you how far gone it is. There's only one real issue, in my opinion, for the American people. They finally got to stop pointing fingers somewhere else and figure out that allowing an economic system to exist that behaves this way, that puts as its leader a person whose lack of appropriateness for the job is so grotesquely on display every day, the whole world kind of shakes its head in stunned disbelief. You're supposed to have a veneer. That's why you have Ivy League schools. You learn how to not show that sort of thing. The system requires it, but you have to disguise it. The system is an extremist, and so it can't... It actually needs clowns, theater performers, to distract people. Let's get angry at Mr. Trump. What what for? When he's gone, there's 20 more like that. There's no shortage. England is about to put into office their Mr. Trump. The Italians already have done it. Boris Johnson in England, for those of you, pay attention. It's just another Trump. Similarly patterned. We'll never figure out who copied who. These are disaster signs. That's why, to go back to the beginning, yes, this is another capitalist crisis. Yes, we will have a downturn in the next 12 to 18 months. Everybody who pays attention knows that. But that's a system that's an extremist. We don't know when capitalism will die, but we do know that it will, because every other system of economics the world has ever had were born, evolved over time, and then they died. That's what happened to slavery, that's what happened to feudalism, that's what happened to ancient tribal economic systems, and so on. Capitalism, we know, was born. Capitalism, we know, has evolved. The next step is obvious. It's not whether. It's just when. And how much damage will its demise impose on the rest of us? Thank you. Dr. Harriet Fraud. Hi. I'm going to talk about what happened to America's personal life in the last capitalist movement of investment out of America and how those investment decisions have affected personal dating, relationships, marriages, and families. The old love song of the 1960s 
Love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. That reality was true only for white Americans, in any case. But when it was sung and so popular, America was a far less integrated nation than it is now. America was 87% white in the 60s. It's now 63% white. Things are changing. What was the reality behind that song? Well, love and marriage had to go together. Birth control was not legalized in every state in the United States, at least for single women, until 1972. And so being able to get the pill before the age of 21 was an important discovery. It was the thing that most determined women's ability to go to and stay in college. And now it's interesting that women are the majority of people in all higher education. It wasn't until the year 2000 that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission ruled that prescription contraception had to be covered by employers. That's why now love and marriage don't go together like a horse and carriage. In fact, the more educated women are, the later they get married, the later they have children, and the more likely it is that they won't have children. So that song celebrated an America that's done. That was the America that gave family wages to the vast majority of U.S. men who were white. And they got two wage supplements in our very scarce labor market, one for their whiteness and one for their maleness. Those wages were given because there was a very scarce labor market made the more scarce in our sexist, racist nation. There was also a strong union movement that could push up wages. That ended in the 1970s. And Americans have been in dazed despair over that ending until very recently when people are waking up. In the 1970s, things changed. The jet engine was discovered. Computers came into being. Sophisticated international communication systems allowed people to communicate overseas. Advanced mechanization and robotization allowed jobs to be replaced. And a weakened labor market didn't fight the outsourcing that followed. American corporations with these wonderful new inventions exported well-paid industrial jobs to China and India where they could be sure that the workers would be paid less than $4 an hour, have no labor rights, and have no ecological protection and no pensions. Huge profits were accumulated, which, by the way, were brought back home to buy the media and the politicians. Another factor that allowed this was the labor movement's cooperation with McCarthyite anti-communism. The unions threw out their communist and socialist left, who were, parenthetically, among their most militant, most diligent, and best organizers that they had. Therefore, there wasn't a huge union and labor fight against the outsourcing that stole their jobs, the way the communist and socialist unions fought in France, in Germany, and in Scandinavia. That's how come the German metal workers just won a contract for 22 hours a week's work at the same pay that they used to get so they could get home life balance. Wow, that isn't where labor is at in the United States. So all these forces allowed usually male jobs in manufacturing to be outsourced, where huge profits could be made, because that's what it's all about in the capitalist system, not nurturing your nation, but making money for yourself and your board of directors. And that's all recent economic history. That has drastically altered relationships between people. 
because the family wages that ended in the 1970s were the basis of the dependent wife and children and the wage-earning white man. That's over. And with it is the stability that came with dating and love and marriage and family because that family is no longer able to be supported. Now, losing that family is hardly a total loss. It's a mixed bag. That family was stable and predictable, but often a life sentence as well as a life commitment. Until death do us part. It was stifling, particularly for women. In 1963, Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, described this mystique, how American women could be so dissatisfied and unhappy when they could find fulfillment through housework, marriage, sexual passivity, and child-rearing, and attention to a man. Big mystery. How could they want engagement outside the home? At that time, the psychologically healthy woman was a woman with children and a totally fulfilling job supporting her husband and raising her children. The jokes of that time summarized it the way jokes do so well. The joke for men was there's a handy little thing called a wife. You screw it on the bed, it does all the housework, all the childcare, takes care of you when you're sick, and is there for sex too. Wow, good deal, right? The equivalent for the female joke was men are like linoleum. You lay them right once, you can walk on them and they'll support you for 20 years. Those jokes capture the reality that people don't want to say outright, so they hide it under humor and they can laugh. Battered women had no recourse. Furious, confined men and women often took out their rage on children. Child abuse wasn't even legally recognized until 1974, the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, which bolstered battered women's shelters and child abuse reporting and protective services. That family, with its marriage for life, at least was stable. And at that time in those families, children had a hopeful society to look forward to. America won in World War II. We were the only surviving economy. Doors were opening. Employment was there. And so people could recoup themselves from their family trauma. Within today's economy of outsourcing and job scarcity, everything is precarious. The stable male jobs that supported families, however unhappy, is over. Young people can't even plan on having a planet, no less a job they can count on. And what's very interesting is the new developments are that people rent their furniture, They rent their pictures in their house. They rent their clothes at the the runway and other stores because they know they'll have to leave and they want to pack everything in a car when they leave because they don't have stability. So, and that's another thing. If and when people do manage to connect and settle down, they face a majority chance that they'll get divorced. 50% of legal marriages now end in separation, legal separation or divorce. That's double what it was in the 60s and early 70s. Another 15 to 20% split. They don't have assets or kids that they want to fight over. They make a mutual agreement, which they may or may not keep, and they split. So we're talking about 65 to 75% of marriages. It's mainly now women who refuse marriage. That old stereotype of the woman dragging the man to the altar, forget it. It's over. 80% of divorces are now initiated by women. They don't want to have to do full domestic, 
sexual and emotional jobs for men who won't share those jobs at home while they go out to work. Interestingly enough, unemployed men married to employed women still do less housework than their wives. So now that working women are the majority, 75% of mothers work outside the home for the first time in America, young people are refusing marriage, particularly young women. For the first time in America, the majority of people that they call a reproductive age, 18 to 35, aren't married. That's a big change. And, you know, it's also summarized in a humorous thing. I was telling my daughter about the old saw to keep women virginal. Why buy the cow if you could get the milk for free? And she said to me, hey, mom, you know what I say? Why bring a pig in your house if all you want is sausage? (laughs) The pill made a big difference. Those marriages that do exist are deemed a luxury good in the press. How come? Well, those are a luxury good because they contain two college-educated or more educated people who each bring in large salaries, unless they're in the 1%, which are a whole different picture. These couples can afford to farm out what were traditional women's tasks. They get housekeepers to do their work. They get nannies. They get daycare. They get after-school programs and lessons for their kids. They get summer camp when the kid is a little older. They get paid vacations, which aren't available to most people in America. These things allow them to have the space. And also, of course, they can get therapy when things get rough in our difficult system. So that those people who are married can stay married with these helps. And now, for the first time, 57% of U.S. households are households without children. And the latest development in married couples is married couples who don't want children and don't have them. However, some people do want children. Many women want children, but not men. So now 42% of children are born outside of a marriage, 42%. In 1970, before male jobs were outsourced, 13.5% of U.S. children were born outside of a marriage. Black men were never given family wages. Therefore, even in 1970, 24% of black children were born outside of a marriage, whereas only 3% of white children were born outside of a marriage. In 1970, Patrick Moynihan made a treatise on on what is the family and what is the problem with the black family. It's a parallel with Charles Murray's book in 2012 about family. They both decided within the capitalist ideology that the problems were immorality of the people involved. Patrick Moynihan discovered the pathology of the black family that makes their men unreliable and abandoning their children. Not that they can't support them because they can't get a family wage. That was not part of the discussion. Charles Murray did the same thing for whites, saying working-class white men have become immoral and lazy, and that's why their marriages are dissolving. Capitalism's responsibility was excised from the discourse as it is in popular American culture. However, we do have to face that although the family is questionable, and it really was born out of capitalism and born out of a necessity to make every man a feudal ruler of his household and to give to women support in pregnancy and have children as chattel. However, in spite of its rapid dissolution, the family is the only basic emotional and child-rearing institution we have. So we can't really give up on family. We can work on developing alternatives, but we can't give up on it. So what can we do to make relationships last 
and marriage and child rearing easier for people? Well, we could do what almost every other developed, well, every other developed nation does to support families. We could give paid maternity and paternity leaves. We are one of four nations that does not do that. And the other three are Papua New Guinea, Swaziland, Somalia, and um, let's see, the United States, Swaziland, Somalia, and what was the last one? Papua Papua New Guinea, which I mentioned at first. So we're not in good company here. We're in the company of desperately poor states, some of which, like Somalia, are crumbling. Well, let's look at our European equals or near equals, although they're not as rich as us in the developed world. There is universal childcare starting at three years old in quality centers in France, and those quality centers have teachers with master's degrees. They're paid on the same education level as other teachers, whereas here, childcare workers are paid the equivalent of parking lot attendants, some of the worst paid people in the United States. They also have an assistant teacher with an associate's degree. They have a paid nurse on the staff in case kids get sick, and they have a sick room so parents can work even though their kids are not well. And France is just as mixed race a society and mixed wealth a society as the United States, so they're the best comparison. They also have universal after-school and summer care, which can't be more than 15% of your salary. They have subsidies for single parents, clothing subsidies for school and other things. The best on that is Sweden, where single mothers make 98% of what men earn. Whereas in the United States, if you look at what women earn versus men at any point, it's 81 cents of a men's dollar. If you look at the 15-year trajectory of women's lives, where we take time out to take care of children and relatives, we make 42% over a lifetime. 42% of what men earn, if you look at a 15-year slice. We could also have free medical care, free college, the way most other developed countries do. We could have low-cost, healthy McDonald's restaurants that have little prizes, snacks, playgrounds, and healthy, low-cost food. And vegan. And vegan for those who want it. We spend a trillion dollars a year on the military. What? And we're losing every war. We're losing in Afghanistan. We're losing in Iraq. We're in 130 countries. And we're not doing well. What is this? A boon to the military in which we're the top producers? Mm -mm. Looks like it. We're the richest nation in the world and we provide the least support for our families. We could pull the rug out of the religious rights commitment to family while they try to, while they try to erode every support that we advocate from abortion rights and a chosen family to birth control to universal child care to family leaves. The left could stand up with a family program and a personal life program, which is possible, just not possible with our capitalism. And of course we could do it. Here the left has really made a huge mistake, ceding that territory of family and relationships to the right, which erodes the economic basis for those relationships while talking about their importance. We could do that. We could pull that right wing's moralistic rug right out from under them. Let's do it. Dr. Westcott? Good morning. Uh, It is a real pleasure to be on the dais with Dr. Fraud and Professor Wolf. Uh, So I'm going to just chime in with a few observations of my own. 
and they relate to enslavement and mass incarceration in this country. So it's, it's hard to believe, but it's, it's now the summer of 2019. When I was a young person growing up in the 1970s, that sounded like the distant future. Seriously. Past Huxley's Brave New World and Orwell's 1984 and Y2K into the veil of the 21st century. I remember my father, an optimistic white man, saying, things will be better for you, Kimmy. So unfortunately, as we see again and again, as long as attitudes and values reinforce the existing power structure, the world of the past is our present and future. But it's also possible to learn from the forces and systems of control that culminated in the late 20th century. This includes not only examining the roots and the impact of capitalism as we try to survive under it, but also examining the process and the effect of chattelization and enslavement, and exploring on a personal level what it means to embody property and what is required to struggle to move beyond that economically and culturally. There are at least three interconnected systems of hierarchy, capitalism, patriarchy, and white supremacy. These systems valorize power from extracted wealth, male dominance, and whiteness, whatever that is. Capitalism effectively integrates and builds upon all of these systems. The United States history is marked by the people of the African diaspora's ongoing struggle to break free from the legal and the economic and the social status of being defined as property from the violence used to keep us in our place and the stress of being forced to live under institutions that feed these conditions day after day. When your kids are routinely shot by the police, your schools have no resources and convey your children to prison by design. And people look at you on the subway or the street as though you define the lowest rung in the society. How did this happen? The interlocking systems of patriarchy and capitalism and white supremacy did their work, dehumanizing and converting other people to their use. A prime example of a servant institution of patriarchal white supremacist capitalism is the enforcement prison punishment system. I wish it could be said that we've moved beyond the slave patrols and their role in protecting white property. It sometimes feels like we're living in an endless adaptation of the Scottsboro Boys or Emmett Till and a thousand other personal tragedies. This is the horror of Ava DuVernay's account of the roundup of the Central Park Five, when they see us, which follows the legacy of hunting down people like animals, wilding boys, treeing pe people like dogs. The thoughtless violence extends to Trayvon Martin, and Philando Castile to today. By now, black people know that the police are deployed to protect the peace and the property and the interests of white citizenry. And when you think about the way in which authority has been used throughout history, the Pinkertons, security agents paid to protect the corporate property of the railroad magnates of the robber baron era, the parallels are clear. Consider the way in which police are used today as a prelude to displacement by conducting sweeps and moving out the poor living in areas like Bedford-Stuyvesant and now Brownsville, targeted for development and resettlement by real estate magnates. And as Marxist political economist Ruchin Kircharmer noted, the punishment system, like all institutions, evolves and adapts to changing economic conditions, like emancipation, and social mandates to uphold the purity condition of the United States as a mythic white nation to contain its black non-citizens. Today, even as people work to slow the operation of criminalizing black and poor people, there remain over 2.3 million persons incarcerated in the U.S. punishment system. 60% in the federal system are black and brown. Over 70% in New York are black and brown in the state system, and at Rikers at its peak, it was close to 90%. 
How do we get here? As you know, the U.S. emerged in 1790, that prison system, from an anti-aristocratic social dynamic that followed the American and the French revolutions. And this led to bringing punishment inside, outside from public view and into the prison. This was in marked contrast to earlier public execution events like hanging that operated to display the power of the state and become provocative to the sensibilities of common people. This became an, an irritant. Prisons were also used to address the establishment's fear of new immigrants, then Irish and German, who arrived to feed the rapidly expanding U.S. labor market and was used to contain perceived social disruptors, meaning free blacks, the poor, the immigrant newcomers, often lower caste, who were viewed as dangerous to the existing established order. It should be noted that slaves were very prevalent in the North and were frequently employed as skilled labor on behalf of their owners. And in fact, Lehman Brothers invested in slaves along with the other commodities, like cotton. Once punishment was moved inside, prison processes, as described by Michel Foucault in Discipline and Punish, they were used as a kind of a training ground to indoctrinate persons into the routines of early industrial capitalism, waking people at 5 a.m. with bells and horns for a day of closely supervised work. Their labor was used to subsidize the operation of the prison. That was the Auburn model. But the degree of energy and labor extraction could not compare to the post-Civil War conditions where the incarceration project was to contain and target emancipated black people who had yet to establish that they were human beings. Now, you all remember that Dred Scott had only been decided in 1857, and the main quote from that is, the black man possesses no rights that the white man is bound to respect. Following emancipation, as we know, the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution justified returning people, almost exclusively black, to the condition of slavery through incarceration. In the South, the legal system worked in tandem with the punishment system to accomplish this objective by enacting black codes and other laws that criminalized acts like loitering and pig theft and applying hyperinflated sentencing that led through the operation of the convict lease and chain gang systems. As many of you may probably know, the convict lease system subsidized the southern economy until 1928, and that's when it ended in Alabama. And it periodically keeps rearing its head. Joe Orpaio in Arizona tried to reinstitute it again in 1995. And here's where mostly black convicted persons were leased to private companies engaged in incredibly dangerous work like mining, or pine tar extraction, or railroad construction. And you should know that at least 60 to 70% of the persons in these conditions died. There's a book by Professor Mancini, One Died, Get Another. That's really the description of the convict lease system. Its successor system, the chain gang, was responsible for building over 70% of the southern roads in this country. So we see, not only was the wealth of white individuals built by owning and using and selling slaves, but so was white societal wealth. When we talk about how the average wealth of a white family in the U.S. is close to 10 times that of a black family, these are its roots. And so in many ways, the capitalist economy was built on the subordination of black people. And so was the concept of the white working class. As Steve Martineau and David Rodiger highlight, white supremacy in the United States led to its economic formation and its class identity, particularly in unions like the AFL-CIO, where the whole notion of being in a union was being skilled and white. And the split among working people that could be defined as worker has led to the weakness of the labor movement that we still see today. So following emancipation in the late 19th century, white society attempted to further contain blacks by establishing a formal apartheid state. And I'm sure you all remember Plessy versus Ferguson. This was decided in 1896. Basically, that's a Supreme Court case that inaugurated the new Jim Crow 
The state-sponsored apartheid system. And throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, apartheid and destruction were justified by narratives of black male predatory sexuality targeting white women. These narratives, among others, served to justify purging black people from towns and cities, as in Atlanta's race riot in 1906. And even when blacks stepped out of the box and they got out of their destitution and they formed their own thriving communities like Wilmington, North Carolina, or Tulsa, Oklahoma, white mobs acted en masse to destroy and burn them. So after all of the violence and the repressive social atmosphere following World War I, blacks attempted to migrate away from the extractive labor practices secured by violence, debt peonage, sharecropping, convict lease, chain gang. And this happened all during the first and the second migrations from 1915 to 1940 and from 1940 to 1970. But when they arrived in the North, this is what they encountered. Laws and practices designed to protect white space and interests like restrictive covenants and redlining and renewal targeting selective communities. Legislation that expressly omitted the vast majority of black workers, which at that time were farmers and domestics, from being covered under social security and unemployment insurance and minimum wage laws. Even after blacks gave their lives in World War II, in its aftermath, blacks were once again contained in small areas in these ghettos, often through this urban renewal planning. Banks would not lend money to blacks to buy houses in prime areas for investment because of the redlining practices. And blacks could not take full advantage of legislation like the GI Bill, which was designed to make education and loans and housing easier for veterans. So the experience of black people in the United States illustrates how the forces of white supremacy acted through and beyond capitalism, and how containment practices were linked to the expansion of the criminalization of black and brown people and the institutions of containment, which became mass incarceration. So how did this work? Our apartheid conditions have created a fundamental divide between whites and blacks. At the same time, following the Great Migrations, more blacks were living in the North and in cities like Detroit and Philadelphia and Chicago. And so the containment apparatus needed to grow. The demands of the civil rights movement and the black power and anti-war movements fed a sense of urgency about containing black and radical people in the 60s. So following the rebellions in northern cities culminating after the assassination of Dr. King and the Democratic National Convention of 1968, a conservative movement that galvanized around the presidency of Barry Wold, uh, that, that candidacy of Barry Goldwater in 1964, led to a refrain of this call to law and order. And that meant really contain the black and the radical people. As it happened, the emerging legal justification for building up the punishment system to immobilize black people and disruptive white people was drugs. Drug use was presented as an acceptable justification for acting to restore social order. The state further criminalized drugs, but then labeled the black population as the major users, and the, they were the group with a problem. And at the same time, the FBI flooded drugs into the black community so blacks could be arrested for the possession of drugs. New laws, like the Rockefeller drug law, secured long prison terms for, for drug users and sellers, requiring the building of new prisons, it was argued, which were all situated, by the way, in the upstate economy, in the upstate New York region. It was an economic boost to a flagging section of that state. And you'll see it in other states across the country where they develop prisons. It's an injection to feed a lot of those interests. At the same time, Institutions that operated to separate black families grew under the compelling crisis of crack cocaine in the 1980s. It is worth noting that the recent opioid crisis that initially affected most white people is now deemed a public health crisis. After the devastation of mass incarceration and the effect of racialized unemployment where blacks are on average unemployed at twice the rate of white, white people, 
The real estate interests in New York City became interested again in capitalizing on New York City development, and they're doing so with a vengeance. The white upper class and international capital are resettling city land that they abandoned in the 1960s and 70s when the president declared that the Bronx was burning. Doing so by mass displacement policies through real estate investment and once again, hyper-enforcement and incarceration. The result, according to the census, large numbers of black, brown, and poor people migrated out of New York City. In the last 10 years, over a million people have left New York since 2010. Instead of providing resources to help people self-determine and remain in their communities and treat historical trauma arising from the violence and the deprivation and the demonizing narratives of inferiority, black people and brown are having to scramble once again to find a place where they can afford to remain where they can build and sustain a community. That's the reasons that reparations is so current in today's dialogue, and the reason to me that the most urgent work that can be done is to build black community resources and power through communal ownership. How could we possibly make whole the extensive, long-ranging damage arising from enslavement extending to today? This is because These harms have damaged black bodies as people, emotional beings, barring them from access to education and union membership and the tools needed to function in this society and to fully participate in the life of the community. The inability to develop an adequate remedy is no excuse for the failure to begin to develop these supports. So let's do that work together.